you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 14, verse 30. While you're turning there, uh, if you would please be praying for me next week, uh, I'll be at the Western District Camp Meeting, and I'm teaching Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. I'll be home for Sunday. I'll miss next Wednesday night. Brother David Jury, who is competent, of course, will be ministering next Wednesday night. We're praying for our team camp. We have a lot of parents who like to go down on Wednesday night. And I talked to Brother Joel, our youth pastor today. The camp is going really good. And we believe that life-changing and eternity-altering encounters with God happen maybe times like this on a Wednesday night. But they certainly happen at youth camps. And we're praying that the Lord would do that. John chapter 14, verse 30. The words of Jesus. Hereafter I will not talk much with you. For the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Tonight I'd like to uh, speak to you on the subject. I'd like for you to kind of get this in your mind. You might be saying this a little bit. I don't hate nobody. Now, I know that that's not proper English. It's summertime, so chill out, all the English teachers. It's a direct quote, and I like it. You may be seated. Most of you have heard me say that line before when I was teaching a series on personal wholeness. But I just did a drive-by. It was one of those things that you know, are locked in my mind and hopefully will remain there forever. And it's more than just a phrase. It's something that means something very special to me because of the man who said it. It is a direct quote from Brother J.T. Pugh. Uh, J.T. Pugh was one of the great apostolic leaders in the United Pentecostal Church. He was a pastor, conference preacher. Uh, one of his epic sermons that people talk about, years ago he preached your first night in hell. And whoever heard it has never forgotten that message. He was an organizational leader. At one time he served as the home missions director, and now that's the North American Missions Division. He shaped a lot of policy and thinking in the United Pentecostal Church. He was also a pastor in Odessa, Texas. I had the privilege of preaching a youth revival there a long, long time ago when I was a youth pastor. Brother Pugh was a homespun scholar, a deep thinker, a student of the Bible. In the early days of me being pastor at Atlanta West, uh, one of the things that I intentionally did was bring elders to our church. I wanted to hear the voice of elders, and I felt like our church needed to hear the voice of the voices of elders in my life that meant a lot to me to help strengthen and stabilize our church. Brother P was one of those men that I brought here because I admired him so much. When Brother P passed away, he and his wife passed away within a day's period of time. Uh, I went to their funeral in Odessa, Texas uh, because I just wanted to show honor to this great man. Well, Brother P was here. He was to preach for us. And I'd heard Brother P talk about one of his favorite meals. He was raised in Louisiana. He loved cornbread and buttermilk. So I told my wife, we're going to have Brother Pew over to our house. And I don't know what else we're having. We don't remember what else we had. We talked about it today. But we had cornbread and buttermilk. And at that time, uh, we had 
three young boys. They would have been preteen, early teen. And we had a dog in the backyard. And the backyard looked like it belonged to a rambunctious dog and three more rambunctious boys. And uh, so we had Brother Pew at our house. I was pretty excited about having him there. My wife was a little bit nervous. Now, we've entertained people in our home through the years. When I was asking her about this today to refresh my memory of that visit, years ago when we worked in the youth division, we had a youth division Christmas party in our house. And we had Brother N.A. Urshan, the general superintendent, and Brother C.M. Becton and all of our youth staff came over to our house for dinner. So we've entertained, you know, people like that. But you're always a little nervous, but, but this was different. Not just because it was Brother Pew, but it was the house and the dog and the boys. And, you know, my wife was just a little uptight. But, and she remembers, I did not, that I took him outside in that backyard where the dog and the boys played, and it didn't look that great probably then. So Brother Pew's a very, you know, uh, observant person. He, we ate, he was very gracious, and he said, I've really enjoyed this, you know, and then he looked at me and said, Brother Johns, don't ever do this to your wife again. <laughs> and he laughed, but he was serious. And I laughed, and I knew he was serious. And I said, yes, sir. <laughs> One time uh, I ran into Brother Pew. I don't remember when it was or where it was, but it would have been maybe in the last five years of his life. And this is the, this is the line that you've heard before. And I asked Brother Pew, you know, Brother Pew, how are you doing? And Brother Pew's an elder, you know, he passed away. Of, he had heart trouble. And Brother Pew did, didn't say very many things on accident. He didn't tell me about his blood pressure, whether it was high or low. He didn't tell me about his heart condition. We didn't talk about the church in Odessa. We didn't talk about his travels. He was traveling around doing small group ministry sessions with young ministers, trying to pour into them, trying to mentor them. He didn't talk about any of that. He just looked at me in the way only J.T. Pugh could, and I, don't, I can't imitate anybody. I can't even imitate myself. But he had a West Texas draw that he developed. And he said, I don't hate nobody. Well, I knew what he meant by that. And I thought of all the things that he could say to me. He's saying that on purpose to tell me as an aging elder to a younger minister that of all the things that you need to think about in life, you need to think about the quality of the relationships in your life. Now, Brother Pew didn't tell me that because... He didn't have a chance to hate anybody. He didn't tell me that because he had never been through a few things in his life. He didn't tell me that because no one had ever hated him or had ever done him wrong. I, I know a story that I won't repeat of a situation that occurred in their church of people that he helped as much as anybody he had ever helped who turned that person, turned his back on Brother Pew and like basically knifed him in the back it was a deep wound for that elder. But like Jesus Christ, when Brother Pew got hurt, he understood you have to forgive. And you, have, you can't nurse that hurt. You've got to let go of the hurts that will happen in your life. Jesus said that offenses will come. Now I know he said, woe unto them by whom the offenses come. But woe to them, the offenses are going to come. And Jesus and Brother Pew decided to forgive those who wronged them and to let go of hurt. 
And I preserved what to me are epic words in the title of my message tonight on purpose. I could have corrected the double negative. But I, I want to stick it in your mind really good so that you don't forget it. I don't hate nobody. Can you say that? Can, can, you, can you say that to yourself right now? Can you say just silently, I don't hate nobody. If it makes you feel any better, you can say anybody or anyone. If I asked you to, and I, it's in my notes to ask you to, but I'm not going to do it. Could you turn to the person next to you? Could you? Not will you, but could you? And without the fear of being struck by lightning, sitting here in the house of God, could you say to the person next to you, I don't hate nobody? I didn't say would you, I said could you? <laughs> Some of you are trying to show me how spiritual you are and you can say it and so you are. Thank you. Everything, everything that matters in life and for eternity involves a relationship. You can't take your stuff to heaven. You can only take people to heaven. And Jesus Christ and God through His Word Place a high premium on right relationships. Your relationship with God, of course, should be first. And it should be the highest priority in your life. And if you're not in a healthy, saving relationship with Jesus Christ, if there's something between you and Him, then it is impossible. That word is chosen on purpose. It is impossible... For everything between you and your inner self to be right. And it is impossible for everything between you and other people to be right if you don't have things right with God. Every other relationship in your life is going to be at least a little bit dysfunctional if your relationship with God is not healthy. The Bible in Colossians 2 and 9 uh, gives us a great doctrinal scripture for in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Aren't you glad we know that all the fullness of God dwelt in the body of Jesus Christ? That He was God manifested in the flesh. Do you know that? Are you excited about that truth about the Word of God? Some people do not understand that. That all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Him bodily. But then the Apostle Paul wrote for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, verse 10, and ye, you, are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In other words, you're complete in him, and outside of him you are not complete. And if you remember the series on Sundays and Wednesdays about personal wholeness, I preached an old youth sermon called X equals God from that scripture and if you've forgotten it, you can go back and watch it again. So if you're in a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ, then you have the resources, spiritually and biblically, 
to cultivate a healthy relationship with everyone else, including yourself. Some people actually hate themselves. And Jesus said that you were to love your neighbor as yourself. I love the saying that the trouble I'm having with you is the trouble I'm having with me. Pretty often that's true. That internal conflict causes us to have conflict with others and hurting people hurt other people. So that's why we need to get in a right relationship with Jesus Christ and we need to make sure that we have personal wholeness so we can have health in other relationships in our lives. Now, it doesn't mean that if you're saved that you're going to be in a perfect relationship with everyone else because sometimes you do everything you can and the other person will not cooperate. And the Bible gives us a little help there in Romans 12, 18. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. And when the other party will not cooperate, when they will not do the right thing, sometimes you're stuck. Sometimes you're just stranded. But the greatest potential for you having right relationships with other people is to make sure that you get in a right relationship with God. And I don't mean just that you got saved, but that you stay in a repented, right relationship with Jesus Christ. It is so very, very important. Years ago here I taught a series of several weeks called Cultivating Healthy Relationships. My notes say 2000. It seems like I've revisited it since then. But this message tonight kind of stands alone. To me, a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ starts with salvation. That means that you have repented of your sins. You've turned to Jesus Christ as your Savior, believing that what He did for you on the cross was sufficient payment for your sins. And after you turn from your sins... To Jesus Christ, you were baptized in water in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. So your sins were under the blood of Jesus Christ and you rose to walk in the newness of life by being filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That's how it starts. It's the new birth. We believe in a new life after a new birth. A right relationship with Jesus Christ means a relationship of total submission to Him. When Jesus called us to take up our cross daily and follow Him, it means that we have to die to ourselves, to our self-will, and our sin every day. Our cross is the test of complete obedience to the will of God. It is doing what is right by God's Word, whatever it costs us, the will of God at any cost. And I believe being in a right relationship with Jesus Christ extends to fellowship with the Lord through prayer, through His Word, through worship, through being connected to a local body of Christ where you worship with other people and then you exercise your gifts for God's glory. You are involved finding your place in the body of Christ. I believe that's what a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ looks like. Right with God, salvation, submitted to Him, walking with Him and serving Him in the body of Christ by deploying your gifts for his glory. Now, the Bible is very clear, and Jesus taught that your relationship with other brothers and sisters in the Lord are an extension of your relationship with Him. He gave value to people, He elevated human relationships, 
And he taught that our relationship with other people is tied to our relationship with God. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 4, 20, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother or his sister, he's a liar. Now, I did not write that, so I just always say, please do not get mad at me. I did not write the Bible. I just teach and preach it. If I'm not in the Bible, you can get mad at me. But if I'm in the Bible, you're just going to have to take it up with the Lord. Okay? If you, you hate your brother, you're a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? You can see that person. Remember Paul's writing about the Lord's Supper, about communion, when he said you've not discerned the Lord's body. You're trampling over other people to get to this communion table you're not discerning the Lord's body his, his broken body and his body the church your brothers and sisters in the Lord and uh, he writes about what love is in 1 Corinthians 13 so verse 21 and this commandment have we from him that he who loveth God love his brother also and even though it's written in the masculine gender about loving your brother we understand it means our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then, when Jesus wrote this, and this is a pretty powerful thing to me, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 23, Jesus said, Therefore, if you bring thy gift to the altar, we're going to go to church. Back then, we're in the context of a Jewish church service where there's going to be a sacrifice that you bring to the Lord. And you bring your gift to the altar... And while you're at the altar getting ready to offer your sacrificial gift, it comes to your mind while you're there at the altar that your brother has ought against you. You're in church. You're worshiping God. You're down at the altar. You're praying. You're telling the Lord you'll go be a missionary to Afghanistan or Antarctica or some other place like that. Jesus said in verse 24, Leave there thy gift. What? I mean, I'm in church. This is important. This is, you know, me and Jesus got our own thing going here. And Jesus says, hold on. If you're going to be right with me, you've got to go try to make it right with that person. They've got something against you, which according to this passage, and it goes both ways in other scriptures, but in this case, you have wronged someone. Maybe in some cases they have wronged you and you're holding it against them. We'll get to that later. But you've wronged someone and you remember that your brother has ought against you. Leave your gift before the altar and go thy way. First, I think that says first on the screens. Am I right? Does everybody see the word first? Jesus puts reconciliation ahead of worship in that moment. Because he wants you to be right with other people. He wants you to be able to say, I don't hate nobody. And if you're at the altar offering a gift to the Lord and you hate somebody, Jesus says, hold everything. Go fix that. Because if you can't love the person that you can see them, you can't see me. 
You say you love me, but they are a reflection of me. They, just like you, are created in my image and after my likeness. So you leave your gift, you go be, get right with them, and then come, and then come and offer your gift. Well, that's pretty strong teaching. I know that many of you Bible readers and mature saints of God, you've read this many times, you've heard it taught on, most of us are educated far above the level of our experience. We know more than we really do, right? I don't hate nobody. So we should do all in our power to have healthy relationships with the people in our lives. The Bible tells us that we should make things right as quickly as possible. Now Jesus tells us, leave your gift at the altar, go right now, go. Please don't leave church. I mean, if you have to, this will be a bad time to have an emergency, you know, but anyway. Um, sorry about that. Matthew 5.25. Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him. Lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast in prison. Verily, verily I say unto thee, thou shalt no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. All that stilted King James in that passage. You know, Jesus has given us an example. And he's really given an example of, of a legal situation where that person that you've got a problem with is really got more than ought against you, they've got a court case against you. In the, in the original, in the Greek, that opponent is a plaintiff. And Jesus has given an example. He's basically saying, and I'm going to try to summarize this, he's telling you, you, you got somebody that they've got a good case against you, settle out of court. Do it as quickly as you can. Don't play. Don't wait till it goes to the judge. Don't wait until it goes to the jury. You're going to lose. You're going to get thrown in jail. You're going to have to pay huge fines. If you've got trouble with somebody, settle right away. That's what Jesus is saying. And he uses this legal context to try to say, look how these things play out. The longer you put it off, the more complicated it gets and the higher the price is going to be. Right? That's what you need to know you settle things right away. The moral of the story is don't put off reconciliation. The Apostle Paul said it like this in Ephesians 4.26. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Now... I didn't have in my notes, but I want to break this first phrase down. Years ago, I think of a writer named Watchman Nee. I read this. He said, you know, the Bible didn't say love your brother and sin not. It said be angry and sin not. Because true love and sin are really far apart. But when you're angry, you're not really very far from sin. You can be angry and sin not, but the warning is there because you're not far from it. So you may, you may say, well, I was really angry and I didn't sin. Well, be careful. And, and the Bible would say be careful. And then 
Do not let the sun go down on your wrath because when you do, you give place to the devil. You allow time for the devil to work on that other person and you give time for the devil to work on you and you start, you start writing this scenario out. You start creating a narrative of wider and wider gaps and misunderstanding. So he said, get your differences settled as soon as possible. I can tell you really don't like this, but that's okay. <laughs> Who likes it? I mean, does anybody really like being wrong ever and, not, and having to make things right? I mean, don't raise your hand, but does anybody just love having to apologize? You just enjoy it? Anybody just really love to admit that you were wrong and having to repent and go make things right and humble yourself? If you could raise your hand, then, you know, you probably are going to go up in a personalized rapture, you know, and get carried right out of here. Acts 24, 16. The Apostle Paul, standing before the Governor Felix, and he says these words, And herein do I exercise myself. Some of you do really good at exercising physically and you know, social media, like your thumbs are really worked out well and whatever. But Paul said, I exercise myself. I make this a spiritual exercise. I exercise myself to have always a conscious, conscience, void of offense toward God and toward men. I try to make sure that I work things out between God and me. I work out my own salvation with fear and trembling, one scripture says. And I do what I've got to do to work things out with people. Because I want to make sure at the end of the day I can say I don't hate Very many people. <laughs> no, wait. The Apostle Paul knew the writings of the law in Leviticus 19.15. I'm reading this in the New Living Translation. Do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. You know, there are ditches on either side of the road. So you can favor the poor just because they're poor even though they're wrong or you can favor the rich just because they're rich even though they're wrong and either ditch on either side of the road is wrong make sense? it's the Bible, it makes a lot of sense always judge people fairly do not spread slanderous gossip among your people do not stand idly by when your neighbor's life is threatened I am the Lord. This is the law. This is the Old Testament law. Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Praise the Lord. I don't hate my neighbor. It's my family that... The Lord got us there, didn't He? Keep... 
confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes this. But this is the old law that Paul knew when he said, I exercise myself always to have a conscience that is void of offense against God and men. Paul knew that those were the writings of the Old Testament law. So we need to exercise ourselves in a clear conscience as well. Amen? You see, God and men are affected by our sin. So what happens when you forgive? Or when you are forgiven? Forgiveness really sets us free. You think about what the Lord did for us when He forgave us. He freed us from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin. He set us free. And the Son has set free, is free indeed. And when you say the words to someone who has wronged you, I forgive you, you set them free from your hatred, your anger, the punishment that you might want to bring on them. You free them by your forgiveness. And when we forgive them, we release that prison and we are forgiven. We ourselves are set free. Now, I want to drop this little line in here because forgiveness and trust are two different issues. Forgiveness should be granted immediately, but when trust is violated, trust has to be earned. I believe the first time around in a relationship, trust should be a gift that we give one another. But when trust is violated, it has to be earned back by accountability, and if you can't be accountable, you can't be trusted. When you violated your trust. If you're the kind of person who says, well, you don't trust me, but if you're trustworthy, what's the big deal? You don't mind showing them your phone or your internet browser or your browsing history. You're, you're cool with that. You're fine with that because there's no problem there. But if you're defensive, maybe there's a problem, right? You're defending something. So forgiveness should be immediate. Trust takes time. And it has to be earned. And legitimately, ladies and gentlemen, when you forgive someone for you, for the person who's been hurt, it may not just be one time that you say, I forgive you. Because that hurt rises back up like grief comes back. And you may have to say again and again, Lord, I let them, I let them go from this. I turn them over to you. I release them from the wrong that they have done me. But when you withhold forgiveness from someone who has wronged you, then bitterness begins to develop in your life. Bitterness is the toxin, the spiritual, psychological, emotional, and I believe even physical toxins that develop in your life because you are holding on to a grudge. You're nursing a hurt. You have not really let them go and somehow in your mind, you're making them pay. You've imprisoned them by not releasing them, by forgiving them. And what you're really doing is playing God. 
Because if they've not asked God to forgive them, they're in a whole lot more trouble with Him than they will ever be with you. So you need to let that go. Bitterness is a resentment. It's a negative emotion of hatred. Maybe it's imagined, maybe it's real. Some of you have heard this quote. I looked it up today. I couldn't remember it word for word. But bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. So I could tell many of you maybe you have not heard that. So I'll run that by you again. Bitterness is like drinking poison and then waiting for the other person to die, the person that you're bitter at. And guess what? They're not going to die. They may from their own bitterness, but it's self-inflicted. Bitterness destroys the bitter person, not the person you're bitter toward. Release them. Now, I want to make, there's several things I want to say tonight, right? But there's no statute of limitations with asking for forgiveness. And what I mean by that, if you've done wrong with God or other people, you can't just wait long enough for it to just go away. You follow me? You can't say, well, a year's gone by. It like the offense doesn't exist anymore. No, still they are standing. If you sin before God and you never ask God's forgiveness, do you think that after so long that he just forgives you? Or do you believe that that offense is hanging out there somewhere against your soul waiting for you to right that wrong between you and God so his blood can cover that sin? The same is true with other people. If you've wronged them, you've got to make it right. With God, it means to confess and to forsake your sins. With another person, if you've wronged them, you can't just wait 20 years and help it goes, hope it goes away. I was thinking of a story today. I didn't put it in my notes, but I'll have to make this real generic. But uh, years ago, after my father-in-law passed away, my mother-in-law lived alone. There was a person there in their city who took advantage of this widow financially. And never did anything about it. Later on, can I get back in church? Everything's cool. Everything's great with them. Years are going by. Never comes back. Never pays back a dime. Never apologizes. Never says a word for years. And my mother-in-law, because she's a Christian lady, forgives, lets it go. But it can't be made right until the person who's done the wrong makes it right. It's still hanging over your head. So what I'm saying to you is there's some things that we've all done we're embarrassed of, we're ashamed of, we're awkward and we try to mitigate our own guilt by blaming the other person. Say, well I'm guilty but they're guilty too and what they did is worse than what I did so I'm not going to apologize to them until they apologize to me. They've wronged me, I've wronged them so it just kind of evens out. No. No. As much as in you, as much as lies in you, 
as much as you have anything to do with it. You need to make it right. And if that other person won't cooperate, that's between them and God. You are avoiding drinking the poison. 1 John 1 and 9. If, everybody please say if. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right? Everybody please say if one more time, please. Thank you. If. But if you don't, he can't. He's waiting to forgive you if you will confess your sins. And there's plenty of scripture to say. It's not just saying I'm sorry and then intentionally continuing in that sin. You confess and forsakes. Repentance is not confession alone, standalone confession. Repentance is a change of mind. It is an about face. It's walking away from. It may be walking away from a relationship, a behavior, but it's, the, it's getting away from that. It's killing that. The Bible uses the term mortifying the deeds of the flesh. Okay, now. So you say, you know what? I'm just going to let time go by. I'm just going to let time go by. Ask Jacob how that worked out for he and his brother Esau. Jacob, you know, buys the birthright, steals the blessing. Esau's brother is going to kill him. He runs for his life and he is gone for 20 years. Statute of limitations, 20 years. He's probably thinking... Man, 20 years, you know, I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure that Esau's forgiven me. He's probably been busy with other things and, you know, I'm sure he's let it go. Genesis 32, 6 says, this is not on the screens. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to thy brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. He's got 400 men with him. This is after 20 years. The Lord tells Jacob to go back home. Now think about this. The Lord tells Jacob, it's time for you to go back home to your father's house. So the Lord sends Jacob right into a confrontation with the brother who hates his guts. Pardon me, he really dislikes him. No, he hates him. And 20 years later, he's just as angry as he was the day it happened. And he's got 400 men and he's coming to take his brother out. Verse 7 says, and Jacob was greatly afraid. <laughs> I guess so. And distressed. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He tells the Lord, you sent me back to my father's house and now I've got my brother He's going to kill me. And Jacob does all kinds, he divides his family up and he's going to send gifts and he's going to do what he's always done. He's going to manipulate his way because Jacob means supplanter, heel grabber. Just make it happen, Jacob. Maneuver, manipulate, take advantage of people, figure out a way to make it work. And that worked for a while, but now it's not working at all. And it's a wonderful story of Jacob sends his family away and he's left alone. And he wrestles with an angel of God, theophany, whatever, all night long. When the morning comes, he will not let the angel go, the Lord go, and until he blesses him. And the Lord touches the hollow of his thigh. And, you know, now he's got a hip out of joint. And the Jews, to this day, the Bible said, will not eat that particular sinew because it meant so much to them. What Jacob did that night in that wrestling match 
saved himself and his family in the future of God's plan with an entire nation of people, the 12 tribes of Israel. God's plan was, was preserved that night in that wrestling match. The next morning, Jacob gets up from Jabbok and he is muddy, maybe bloody. I don't know, it sounds good right now. And he's limping, he's halting upon his thigh. And he's going to meet Jacob and the Bible says that Jacob lifts up his eyes and he sees Esau and 400 men with him. Something happened. When Jacob made peace with God, God did something in the heart of Esau. I'm not promising that this will happen every time. But I'm telling you it happened for Jacob. That when Jacob got thoroughly right with God, God helped him make peace with Esau. Genesis 33.3. Speaking of Jacob, and he passed over before them, his family, and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. As he's getting closer and closer to Esau, he is humbling himself before his brother. That helps a lot. If you're going to go in all cocky, defensive, it's probably not going to work. If you really want to make peace, if you will humble yourself, you've got a whole lot better potential of it happening. Verse 4. And Esau, that guy that has 400 hardened warriors with him, and Esau ran to meet him. That might have been a little scary at first. And embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And 20 plus years of animosity melted away in a moment. And Jacob, I think, could say, I don't hate nobody. So the story of Jacob is evidence of how getting right with God can become your greatest resource toward making peace with other people. And if you wrong someone, they are wise to forgive you. They forgive you. They've released themselves from drinking the poison of bitterness. They've made peace with God and they've let it go for their sake. But their forgiveness does not release you from your obligation to confess, to repent, to apologize, to make it right. If you steal something from another person, time does not make restitution. Giving it back and paying back what you took, that's what restitution is. And it's a sign of full repentance. John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit that shows you really mean that you're turning your heart to God. Where's the evidence that you've really changed your mind and your heart toward God? Remember when Zacchaeus, that tax collector... Remember what he did? He said, Lord, if I've taken anything by false accusation, I'll give it back four times over. I'm making peace with God, and I'm making things right with people that I may have wronged in my life. Now, years ago, I, I heard something that I want to share with you that is not a doctrine, but I think it makes sense to me about how to make things right with God, with people, with people, rather. When you apologize to a person... Please do not go to them and say, if, 
If I've ever done anything in the history of the world to offend you, hurt you, wrong you, whatever, please forgive me. No. So it's better to say, I'm sorry in the way I've wronged you and I want to apologize. And then probably the best thing you can say next is to ask them, will you forgive me? Now I can say, please forgive me, but it doesn't ask for a response. But when I ask you, will you forgive me? Now that person has the opportunity to release me by saying, I forgive you. And maybe in that moment, they can't. But you just leave that between them and God and let the work that you just did like Jacob did work on the other party. And you've done everything you can do at that point, as far as I know. I'm not trying to solve every problem here. Genuinely apologize for what you did and ask them, will you forgive me? And I'm repeating myself, give them that opportunity. Now, I want to go into this a little bit farther because our church is really good in what I'm getting ready to talk about. But the Bible is very clear and I've learned some things in 41, almost 41 years of ministry and 24 years of pastoring that... I don't insert myself in everybody's junk, everybody's problem. And I do it, I, I don't do it. I, I, I'm not saying everything I do is because of the Bible, but that's hopefully why I do what I do. I'm not perfect and not trying to project that. But there's a very strong principle in the Bible. When, somebody, when there's a problem between you and someone else, you don't run to the church for the church to solve it. But you do what Matthew chapter 18 verse 15 says. You can get your Bibles. I think these will be on the screen. I, this was late breaking verses. Thank you, Sister Stephanie. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, what's your next move? We can read it together. Go and tell them his fault between thee and him alone. Everybody please say the word alone. This does not say tell your prayer group to pray for so-and-so because they've really done me wrong. I.e. an excuse to gossip about a problem. If you really need help and you have a prayer partner and a spouse and you say really pray for me about this, I've got a problem. This person is just really going to be tough. I need your prayer. But you understand I'm talking about motive here. If you're going to go spread it to everybody in the world, you're disobeying the Bible. The circle of reconciliation should only be as large as the circle of offense. If they wronged you, you go to them, like Jesus said in Matthew 18, you go to them alone. All right, relax. It's all good. It's just the Bible. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother or sister. So that's good. Isn't that great? You've worked this out between two parties, and very few people know about it. Maybe, hopefully, no one else. 
It was done in private. It's solved in private. Bam. Put it under the blood of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be clean and simple? Anybody that's been church, work, home, family, very long, knows good and well, what I just said, quoting the words of Jesus, has been violated with great regularity in the body of Christ by people in our culture because we want to whine and tell our side of the story. That's not the only reason, but that's one reason. We want to build a case against that person instead of making peace with them. We build a case. We get people on our side. And it makes a problem worse. And now we are in violation of the scripture by doing that. And we've complicated something that could be simplified. Verse 16. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Now the Bible is the smartest book in the world because it was written by God who knows everything and he's, he knows, he knows. So when I read these words, I'm reading God's words who knows how to help us with human relationships. When I take one or two people, so look, I came to you, just you and me. You wouldn't make this right. So I brought one or two more people. Now, this is what Jesus says, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. Because there are times when it's a misunderstanding, a miss. Right? There are times when maybe you're at fault and you didn't even know that. And these two people, you're not going to gang up on them. You're establishing every word. You're trying to make sure that you get clarity and the person, if they've clearly offended you, that you've now gone to the second level of the Bible and trying to make peace with another person because you want to die saying, I don't hate nobody. You also want to live saying that, by the way. Everybody happy so far? You and them alone, one or two people, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. Verse 17, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. Now we're going to get the church involved because we need some intervention from somebody in authority. There are different kinds of authority. There's domestic authority, husbands, wives. There's civil authority, police officers. He doesn't bear the sword in vain. He takes vengeance on bad guys, right? It's okay to have a armed police force. That's what the Bible, Romans 13, read it for yourself about civil authority. There's law, judges, jail, you know. It's like the, like the kid, he's 18 years old and he's sick of living under his mom and dad's authority and he says, I'm tired of you telling me what to do. I'm going to join the army. <laughs> sure, go ahead. You can be on your own there. Do whatever you want. can run, but you can't hide. So then you go to the church, and the Bible says, and I, and I said that about authority for a reason, if they neglect to hear the church, now you count that person as a heathen man and a publican. They have refused spiritual authority. Now they're turned over to civil authority. They're now outside of the authority of the church. They will not listen to spiritual authority. 
Verse 18, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is actually referring to an act of the local church of excommunication where the Lord said, If you do it on earth, I will honor it in heaven. It is not about casting out devils. That might have application to that, but specifically this is talking about dealing with a person who will not reconcile to a brother or sister over a broken relationship. That's how the Bible says. So time doesn't heal wounds. Only God can. We've got to do what the Bible says. Now, obviously the perfect example for all of us is Jesus Christ. Who demonstrated unconditional love and forgiveness. The Bible said he was reviled and he reviled not again. Isaiah 53, you should read that psalm over and over about the abuse that Jesus suffered. He was abused, mistreated, unjustly judged and condemned to die. Shamed, humiliated, beaten, tortured. Laid down his innocent, sinless life like a lamb to the slaughter, right? A sheep before her shears is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. But on the cross, professional killers are inflicting the wrath of Rome on his body, the broken body of Jesus. Luke 23, 33. And they are come to the place which is called Calvary. There they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And Jesus, and then said Jesus, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. That's a hard phrase. They know not what they do. Now wait a second. These guys are experts with hammers and nails and crosses and killing. They know exactly what they're doing. What do you mean they don't know what they're doing? They're killing me. Sometimes you feel like the people who are killing you with their words or whatever, that they know what they're doing. But somehow in his mercy... Jesus looked past the actions of those soldiers who were putting them to death and found a way to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The apostle Peter, speaking of Jesus, said, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, follow his steps, who did no sin, Neither was guile found in his mouth. He did not drink the poison of bitterness. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. In other words, he released those that hated him into the hands of the righteous judge, the judge of all the earth who will do right. That's what Jesus said in John 14, 30, when he was teaching his disciples at the end of his life. The prince of this world is coming. The devil is coming after me. But there's nothing in me that belongs to him. Check me out. There's no sin. There's no hatred. 
There's no impurity. There's no territory that he's laid. He can't stake a claim to anything in me to say that in you came from me. The prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. I'd like the worship team to come. I have a last verse here, but I'll try to... to, Well, I'll just walk through this. I'll just read through this, okay? Matthew 18, 21. And came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? You know, there are people when Jesus says, somebody smites you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. And they interpret that to mean, once they hit me on the second cheek, they belong to me. That is not what Jesus meant. And here's the evidence. They wronged me seven times. And uh, Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Or times without number, maybe. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven like a certain king who would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him ten thousand talents. Do you know how much that is? It's a lot of money. One translation says millions and millions of dollars. It's 300 tons of silver. We would use the vernacular, say it was zillions of dollars, an amount that could not be comprehended. Okay? He owes his master, his boss, so much money he can never pay it in a million years. He can never pay it back. But for as much as he had not to pay, the Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. It would never happen. He couldn't pay them all in a hundred lifetimes. And then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him that debt. He said, I forgive you of all those zillions of dollars. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants. We got a Lord and, you know, forgives the servant. Now he's going to go out and find a peer, another human being, which owed him a hundred pence. It's like a few dollars. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe me. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. It was the debt he could pay. And he would not. And he went and cast him into prison until he could pay the debt. And when his fellow servants, the other guys standing around, saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, and he calls that servant back in. A wicked servant. I forgave thee all that debt because you desired me, you asked me. Should not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant even as I had pity on thee? And the Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise 
shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one his brother or sister their trespasses. There's no other way to interpret this verse except to say that Jesus had forgiven us such a debt, a debt of sin we could not pay. And if we will not release the people who have wronged us from the debt they owe us, it's pretty apparent by Matthew 18 that the Lord goes back and He recharges us with all the sin that we can never buy our way out of. So I would say it makes sense to do everything we can to live at peace with all people. Paul said, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. If you don't mind, please stand. I think I shared this incident with you a while back. But my grandfather, when he was maybe in his middle 50s or so, was in a situation where he was horribly wronged by a person. I cannot go into the details, but he was so wronged by that person. And he had forgiven that person, but I don't think he ever had a conversation. My grandfather, as many of you know, lived to be 100 years old. One day he was out in his garden plowing with his rotor tiller. And the Lord spoke to him and said, You go get that man's number and you call him and tell him that you have forgiven him. He stopped what he was doing. He went in the house. I don't know how he got his number. The man lived in another state. Years, decades had gone by. He reached him on the phone. He told him his name. I could call his name tonight. And he said, I want you to know that I have forgiven you. And maybe within a day to a few days, that man that my grandfather released passed away. I don't know the condition of that man's soul when he died, but I know that my grandfather had the opportunity to let go of something that he had kind of kept there for a long, long time. Although he had maybe told the Lord, he had never told that person. Maybe you could just humor me one last time and say, I don't hate nobody. New Living Translation, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love keeps no record of wrongs. If you have time to come and pray, would you mind joining me at the altar and let's spend a few moments talking to the Lord. And if you need to go, I understand that. And if you have very early mornings. But if you have a moment, we're going to just talk to the Lord.